Hey, it's Katie. And Alana. And here is another episode of Black and Yellow coming at ya. <laughs> Welcome back, Black and Yellow Nation. We are happy to be in your ears with this new episode. We have a great conversation in store for you today, and we think you're really going to enjoy it as much as we did. If this is your first time checking out the show, we are stoked to have you with us today. Be sure to subscribe or follow so that you never miss an episode in the future. And if you are a returning listener, we are happy to have you back with us once more. Yeah, totally. So on today's episode, we're going to be sitting down with an author who has tackled a topic that is very close to both of our hearts. The topic being cross-racial solidarity. I am sure, as you can probably guess by the name of the podcast, having a sense of community and respect and unity, most importantly, for and with other ethnic groups outside of the ones that Katie and I personally identify with is critically important to the work that we do here on the show. The more that we can understand people from different perspectives, different ethnic backgrounds, I think the richer, more unified of a culture we will be. Um, And so we talk about the idea of cross-racial solidarity. We also talk about the idea of lifting as we climb, which if that is a a new quote to you, or maybe you've heard it and you're like, I don't quite know where I've heard that from. Have no fear. Uh, So that quote is a famed Mary Church Terrell quote. And Terrell was a black feminist who helped to start the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW, and lift as we climb was the motto of that organization. Uh, It was alive and well in 1860-something, and it is still alive and well today in 2021. We had just a true joy talking to our guest today. We hope that you enjoy her as well. We will get to her shortly, but first, let's put our money where our mouth is, shall we? Yes. So this is the episode where we encourage our listeners to engage in economic protest. Hey, the daily protests of BLM might not be happening the way they the way that they were fiercely and ferociously last year, but you dear listener can absolutely participate in an everyday form of protest and you can do that with your dollars. Where you choose to spend has a big impact on cultures and so this segment is designed for us to spotlight a Black-owned business and an Asian-owned business that we like, that we're passionate about, that we're going to pass that passion on to you. We encourage you to shop Black and Asian as much as possible on this show. So with that said, Katie, what you got? Yes, I have T-Street, T-E-A, and you can find them on Instagram, at T-Street Denver. Personally, with the pandemic, I have been getting really into teas again, and I have been missing those authentic tea shops. Not like the conglomerate, you know, like, let's sell this everywhere type of tea places, but the, you know, mom pop style, like hole in the wall tea places that have every type of tea possible and more. And I really like teas that you can add things to. You you add fruit to it. You can add like red bean to it. You can add boba to it. I uh, didn't initially like the texture of chewing something up through a straw, but I really have liked it in the past few years like I've really grown yeah it's really grown on me I don't I don't know why in particular um but I've been really missing that all I have is like 
well, I shouldn't say all I have, but all I have is, <laughs> is plain old black tea, no flavors, no <laughs> toppings, no nothing. It's okay. You can you say know. all you have. It, you know, it feels Just like the original excess. classic. Yeah, yes, there you go. The original classic, <laughs> black tea. Um, you know, from a tea bag, not even uh, the leaves or anything <laughs> fancy. <laughs> so uh, feeling very basic, but uh, y- you got to get your fix somehow. And I came across this really amazing tea shop called Tea Street in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Patrick and Victoria are the owners of Tea Street. They're siblings who often traveled to Hong Kong with their family growing up, and they developed this love for Hong Kong style of milk teas. Cool. I love milk teas. Cool. And they felt this kind of detachment every time they came back to the u.s and they couldn't find like a replica of that style of tea and so they started brewing their own tea they called it tea street they have classic teas you know like the black tea the jasmine green tea you know um, and they also have the milk teas they have fresh teas winter melon teas they have the toppings like boba coconut jelly uh red bean the different fruits like pineapple and other and they also have non-tea drinks so if you're if you're not a tea person you can still go here and enjoy it and they have so many more options that was i was only naming a few um and you can find them online at www.tstreetdenver.com if you're interested but um yeah i'm hyped i will now (laughs) never look at black tea the same way (laughs) after the way that you described it i'm always just gonna look at it in a very specific way from here on out but have no fear girl i'm right there with you with like plain old green tea so sisters in plain tea stick together apparently yes I just need an upgrade from Lipton tea is really what I'm looking for. Got it. Got it. I mean, I give you a lot of credit for being able to, like, I can't do boba. I think it's the textural, the, the difference texture, yeah. like a smooth liquid and something to chew. I've never been able to get, and I to get into it, and I know it's 100% a texture thing, and... I feel like I feel like my palate will get to a certain level of like uh, uh, refinement when I can get mm. past that textural <laughs> uh, that textural jarring the surprise yeah 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 there's like I don't like pulp in my juice like I'm one of those oh I don't either people. I can't do it it's like a thing. I don't like to gum and eat and drink. Not gum. I wouldn't be gumming anything. I don't like to like chew and and drink at the same time. It's very strange. Sometimes it gets stuck in your throat too, to be honest. (laughs) I am good on that. I now firmly think that there's a listener that thinks I have dentures. Uh, uh, Well, there you go. So I uh, chose a bit of an outing and a thing to buy. So I chose moonlight roller at moonlight roller on the socials Uh, i live very close to a super dope roller skating rink okay i really enjoyed roller skating pre-pandemic every time i drive by this roller skating rink it reminds me of how much i miss roller skating and how fun it was for me especially roller skating at this particular place uh and roller skating just as a fact has long had its roots in black culture and in black self-expression it used to be a way that like back in the 70s you know like a a fine man would go out and he would skate and he would show off his best moves and take home a brick house like like roller skating (laughs) is big in black culture and um i've always secretly wanted an adult pair of roller skates Mm. but i i always thought i could never justify the expense like i'm not roller skating five days a week so i felt like i could never really justify that purchase. i see ever after learning about moonlight roller and saw that they have some tiny 
hate ass roller skates online. I might okay. be beginning to change my tune. Okay. And I really, I'm a sucker for a good upstart story. I love yeah. this upstart story. Uh, so when mom and veteran Adrian Cooper found herself battling depression, she turned to roller skating, rad, yeah. and eventually founded Moonlight Roller, which is a mobile skating community. It's also got like a skate rental service if you want to host them for a party. And yes. Cooper also designed her own highly specialized skates. They're known as the Moon Boot, and they come in buku different colors, and they are <laughs> so tight, tighter than like any of those the, the brown roller skates yeah. that you wore as a kid. Like yeah. that, those aren't fun, and these no. are super fun. I have my eye on the Flash Dance iridescent model. Oh, I like uh, the names. I, okay, like it's very disco-y. <laughs> like if you yeah. thought disco was dead, hop on this website and you'll be like, oh no, disco is alive and well. And like, <laughs> I can't wait to get my skate on. So yeah, I intend to look very fly in a new pair of skates by Moonlight Roller once the rings reopen. Uh, check out Moonlight yeah. Roller for all of your skating needs. I will drop a link to Moonlight Roller as well as T Street Denver in today's show notes if you would like to get your drink on, like to get your skate on. Yeah, do both. If you're doing both at the same time, send us a photo Skilled. on Instagram. We want to We want to see it. <laughs> You are living the fancy high life. Absolutely, because I can't skate and drink tea at the same time. I'm going, and taking a picture of yourself doing please. both at the same time. Yes, I want to see that. I will be like Mary J. Blige, honey. I'm going down. Okay, like that for <laughs> sure. Um, so all of that said, let's get to today's guest, shall yes. we? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, she is amazing. Her name is Tomiko Nimura, and she is an Asian American writer living in Tacoma, Washington. Katie, I know hey, you hey. know someone Washington State. She's my neighbor, basically. <laughs> <laughs> she has a degree in English from UC Berkeley, where she got her BA, and the University of Washington, Seattle, where she received her MA and PhD. Okay, homegirl has been very busy. Mm -hmm. uh, her poems, essays, interviews have appeared in Narratively, The Rumpus, Full Grown People, Huron Tree, and Hyphen, as well as Kartika Review and Blue Cactus Press. She also has essays in the anthology in the anthology Ghosts of Seattle Past and New California Writing. She also has written portfolios, reviews, and interviews with BIPOC artists for the Seattle's International Examiner, Discover Nikkei, Crosscut, and KNKX. She is a 2016 Artist Up Grant recipient, a 2019 GAP Award recipient, and has been awarded a Tacoma Arts Commission Tacoma Arts Initiative Project Grant for 2021 to 2022 for her memoir in progress, Pilgrimage. Let's, we both stumbled. Let's like do, can we try to do one yeah, word? it's a lot of words. No, that's, and, and yeah, like I stumbled too. This is not me being shady to, <laughs> to like, like <laughs> I get you, girl, I get you. Let's just like do a clean one so we can do yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, minute 11.50 to 12.50, that'll be the clean one. Cool. Okay. <clears throat> okay. And now on to today's guest. She is amazing. Her name is Tomiko Bleh. 
And now on to today's guest. She is incredible. We think you guys are really going to love her. Her name is Tomiko Nimura, and she is an Asian-American writer living in Tacoma, Washington. Katie, I think you know something hey, about hey, Washington. My neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> she has degrees in English from UC Berkeley, where she got her BA, and the University of Washington, Seattle, where she received her MA and PhD fully educated yes her poems her essays and interviews have appeared in narratively the rumpus full-grown people Huron tree hyphen kartika review and blue cactus press she has essays in the anthologies ghosts of seattle's past and new america Blah. And New California Writing. I'm sorry. I'm just going to take that again one more time because that was a hot-ass mess. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. You're good. You're good. Hopefully this will be the last time. Let me just note this time. 2030. <sighs> okay. And now on to today's guest. She is awesome. We think you guys are going to love talking to her. And now on to today's guest. She is awesome. We think you guys are really going to love her. Her name is Tomiko Nimura, and she's an Asian-American writer living in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, hey. She's my neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) She has degrees in English from UC Berkeley, where she got her BA, and the University of Washington, Seattle, where she received her MA and PhD. Hey, now for education. Her poems, her essays, and her interviews have appeared in Narratively, The Rumpus, Full Grown People, Huron Tree, Hyphen, Kartika Review, and Blue Cactus Press. She has essays in the the anthologies Ghosts of Seattle's Past and New California Writing. She has written portfolios. Oh, my God. She has written profiles, reviews, and interviews with BIPOC artists for the Seattle's International Examiner, Discover Nikkei, Crosscut and KNKX. She is a 2016 Artist Up Grant recipient, a 2019 GAP Award recipient, and has been awarded a Tacoma Arts Commission Tacoma Arts Initiative Project Grant for 2021 to 2022 for her memoir in progress pilgrimage. How are you feeling? Should we do another one or do you think it's good? I think it's good aside from like the little at the beginning. Uh, why don't you just give me that first line again, just to have it clean? The first sentence or just yeah. the line? Uh, the first the sentence. sentence. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I was like, that will sound weird, but yeah, that will. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> okay, I'll do it again. Perfect. She has written profiles, reviews, and interviews with BIPOC artists for the Seattle's International Examiner, Discover Nikkei, Crosscut, and KNKX. Welcome to the Black and Yellow Podcast, Tamiko Nimura. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we start out by having you tell our audience a little bit more about you and the work that you do. All right. I am an Asian American writer. I am half Japanese American, half Filipina, and I live in Tacoma, Washington. I write a lot of different things. Um, I have like five different bios on my website, but it's all related to (laughs) writing. (laughs) I like how you broke them down. I have to tell you that I really love it. It's if I mean eventually the goal is to integrate it all, right? But really, it's just different <laughs> kinds of writing. <laughs> so I do um, arts writing, I do public history, I do community journalism. I have two books out, uh, which are really different, and I'm working on a third. So yeah, oh it's gosh. all related to writing. <laughs> 
That's awesome. We both noticed that um, one of the major themes in your writing is cross-racial solidarity. And we were just curious, is there a particular or specific person or event that introduced you to cross-racial solidarity? Yeah. So I grew up in Roseville, California, which is a little suburb uh, north of Sacramento. Okay. So it was predominantly white and Chicano actually. And I didn't really, I was, I grew up pretty sheltered in that and pretty, uh, pretty privileged in that, uh, certain respects and really cross-racial solidarity didn't really cross my mind until 1992. And I was a sophomore in college and was at a choir rehearsal and Ooh. Yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> great beginning. So I hope you don't mind if I tell it. But yes, yes. <laughs> I was at a choir rehearsal. We were practicing Foray's Requiem, which is a mass for the dead, right? And we had gotten to this very dramatic part of the piece. There was like fire and brimstone and hell and, you know, all these oh things. Oh, my God. And someone ran into the rehearsal. We were at a church south of the Berkeley campus and someone ran into the rehearsal and said, you guys have to leave. There's a telephone pole outside on fire. And we were said, what? <laughs> what? And what had happened was the Rodney King um, uprisings and verdict had just happened. Oh my gosh. And there were so many things going on right around the blocks where we were, right? And you know, Berkeley is, you know, a city known for its activism and mm-hmm. protests and so on. But all of that was something I really did not understand. I mean, truly did not understand at all. And all I knew, right, was that I was in, I was in college, I was away from home, and there were things, things going on on the television, and we all just kind of, you know, ran into cars, and I, I, my dorm was, like, way north of where we were, and so I got into someone's car, you know, drove past Telegraph Avenue, where, you know, there were police in right gear, walking around, um, you know, and this is me, like, sheltered suburban student. Oh, my gosh. Right? <laughs> just thinking... <laughs> What's going on? And so I have, I, I mentioned that because it's a story that had so much impact on me and there was so much that I didn't know before then, right? So much. And so mm. whether I knew it quite then or not, though, that really planted the seeds for finding out so much more about our cross-racial histories in this country. Um, I didn't know why, I mean, I knew, of course, that police brutality would be a terrible thing, right? I knew that that was, all of this was bad, that the officers, you know, getting that, you know, really light sentence was bad, Mm. but I didn't know that long history. Like, I didn't Mm. know what lynching meant, like what it really, really meant, (laughs) right? Um, And so um, when I was deciding what to do after college, part of what I wanted to do was write and edit. Um, I thought I might edit, but then I talked to an editor and thought, oh no, that's a little bit too much of a business thing for me. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) maybe I should try and teach. So I applied to graduate school um, and I realized that I wanted to study multicultural literature, right? Mm. I just at Berkeley really discovered the field of Asian American literature for myself, Uh, walked into my first Asian American studies classroom and just felt this sense of like, 
oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're, I'm home, mm. <laughs> right? 200 people, feelings. so many, most of them Asian American, Asian American professor, Ron Takaki, um, Asian American mm. teaching assistants, you know, like we were at the center of that classroom, right? In a way that I've never experienced before. But I think that in tandem with being a young you know, college sophomore around the time of the Rodney King uprisings, I realized there was so much more that I had to learn. And I thought, well, in graduate school, I'm going to go and study African-American literature and culture as well as Asian-American literature. Um, And so I think for a a fair amount of us who came of age around that time, that that particular phase of African-American, Asian-American discourse uh, really sprang from part of that moment. So long answer, sorry. No, but it's no, a, that's know. awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds so powerful. Just hearing it, that. It was so yeah. powerful, right? I, I just realized that there was so much I didn't know, right? And I was so mad that I didn't know. Sure. And I was so mad at all the forces that went into me not knowing those things, yeah. right? And so ever since then, really, I think I've been interested in um, what they call historiography, right? What goes into the writing of history um, and any you know training, um, you know, all of my kind of secondary training in American ethnic studies was about that, right? Like, you know, what are the histories that we don't know? Why don't we know those histories? Um, And why don't we know the histories of the solidarity as well as the histories of division? I feel like cross-racial solidarity should be a, like a major in college. I feel like, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, hearing your story, it feels like you had to (laughs) jump all different majors and culture studies to get the education that you were looking for. But if we just had something in our education system that combined all of these wonderful cultural studies into one major, think about how... But that's what American ethnic studies is, right? True. True. But I was there at Berkeley and, you know, now that I'm starting to look back on it this many years later, <laughs> um, I realized that I was at, I came to Berkeley right in the middle of, you know, this like whole wave of like multiculturalism and the culture wars. And, you know, mm. I had come from a very traditional, you know, conservative kind of way of studying literature and English. Right. But at Berkeley, I was I came right as they had instituted what they called the American American cultures requirement, hmm. which required oh. you to take um, classes which emphasize, I think, three out of five different racial groups. Um, oh. it, was a requirement, it was a graduation requirement. And it got satisfied by a bunch of different classes, in, you know, not just ethnic studies, but a bunch of different classes. And, you know, at, at Berkeley, which is, you know, academia and still a relatively conservative institution, you know, the campus was struggling with those kinds of growing pains, right? Mm. Like, well, you know, yeah. yeah, do we really want to do this? Do we have to? But I was like... <laughs> I was just totally happy and swimming, you know, like oh, I get to take classes in this and jazz history and, you know, compar- comparative American ethnic literatures and, oh you know, comparative ethnic um, children's literature. Like, you know, it was this Ooh. wealth of, right. It was this wealth of information and richness and stories, especially given where I was from and the training that I'd had before that it was, I was so happy. <laughs> um, but you know, this was, I didn't realize just kind of what a battleground I had stepped onto. Mm. Wow. 
I'm glad you stepped onto it because your Me writing too. is really, really great. And prepping thank for this episode you. has been a lot of fun. So oh, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. I just want to put that out there too. Yeah, definitely did not have a problem reading any of your writing. <laughs> I, was like, awesome. <laughs> I was like, I'll keep going. I don't mind. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's so great to hear, truly. I never get to really hear from readers that often, like after they've read stuff. Oh. So, uh, you know, like, you know, there's like Facebook little things and stuff, sure. right? But, you know, like people that I don't know, it's like, oh, wonder how that went over. <laughs> That's so interesting. Oh my gosh. I I mean, in, so one example, uh, I guess like a, a question that I had, we were mm-hmm. reading your, uh, is it like a, a, I don't know if it's like an essay or like how you would term it, but um, you're writing about, is it Nikkei? Okay, um, yeah. yeah. And I, I was just, uh, I was actually telling my husband about it and he, he's Japanese and he's like, oh, I know what those, all of those words mean. And I was like, oh, great. Could you tell me? <laughs> And so I'm just wondering, um, could you, for one, explain to the listeners at home, you may not be aware, what Nikkei is, and also the significance or importance of using terms like Nikkei and Yonsei in your writing? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So Nikkei refers to uh, people of Japanese descent, right, Uh, usually who are what you might think of as the Japanese diaspora, right? So folks Mm. who have um, emigrated and have raised, you know, families and kids and stuff outside of Japan. Um, So I write for, one of the places I write for regularly, um, and I sent you guys a couple pieces from there, is a place called Discover Nikkei. Um, And it's a web project of the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. And um, it's devoted to really connecting folks of Japanese descent all over the world. So it's actually published oh, in wow. four different languages. Um, cool. And people, right? oh, dang. <laughs> yeah. um, people who are, you know, again, from the Japanese diaspora, but, you know, might be in Chile, right? Or Peru or Canada or, wow. you know, <laughs> um, Brazil, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the site yeah. also publishes in Spanish, Japanese, English, and Portuguese. So it's wow. pretty cool that way. Not everything gets published cross-language, um, but it's a really cool site that way. And so um, in writing it and using that term Nikkei, right, I have in mind a Nikkei audience, right, those who mm. at least have some familiarity with it. Um, the other term you asked about was Yonsei, which is mm-hmm. fourth generation Japanese American. Mm. Um, Japanese Americans, we kind of track our generations maybe a little differently than other immigrant groups. So first generation, the Issei, um, are my grandparents. So those who immigrated from Japan. Um, Nisei, that's second generation. That's my dad's generation. Those who are usually born here. Sansei is third. um, That's my generation. And then Yonsei is my kids. That's fourth. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, it, in writing for that site, especially, I assume that people have some familiarity with um, with those terms. Yeah, my I husband did, knew those. I, I did not. So the counter is I did not know those terms, but yeah, it was very sure. easy for someone who might not know those terms. It wasn't a barrier to entry. It was awesome. very easy to figure them out. So I just want to put that out there to anyone who Great. is looking at hopping on that site. This is very informative, but it's it, if you hop on and you are reading her articles, don't feel like you'll be taken out by some of the language. It's, <laughs> you can still relate to it. You can. It's very easy to understand. Great. So there's there's two ends of that spectrum. Awesome. Yeah. No. And it's it's not like I sprinkle those like a ton throughout that you know you would have to look up. But um, yeah, that's in writing for that site particularly. That's where I'm using those terms a lot. 
Well, can we talk about some of your books? Is that yes? Is that possible? Absolutely. Katie, how about you take the first book, and I will take asking about her most recent book, her graphic novel. Sounds good. Uh, So your first book, Rosa Franklin, A Life in Healthcare, Public Mm -hmm. Service, and Social Justice, told the remarkable life story of Rosa Franklin, the first Black woman elected to the Washington State Senate. We want to know, how did you come across this amazing opportunity as your first book? Um, It's crazy. It's another great story. So I hope you're prepared for it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Tell us. Tell us everything. I'll get the popcorn. Okay. So awesome. Um, So, okay. Part of my work that I fell into, truly just fell into, was um, trying to learn more about the history of Tacoma's Japantown. We actually had a Japantown um, before World War II, right before the incarceration. And most folks do not know that that existed, including folks in Tacoma. And I know (laughs) because there's so little like physically left, right, of of that space and that community. So like one in seven or so came back after the war. So there's a tiny community here now, but very, very few. Um, And the actual like buildings, we have like two left but not everybody knows what those are from or for. So um, anyway, part of my mission has been to just try and raise awareness of what we had, you know, to, to have a sense of ourselves as a city that had deep Japanese American history. So um, people found out about my work here. Um, I did some walking tours with a local historian of that former neighborhood, um, just really taking people around the contours and past these mostly empty, you know, buildings or parking lots. And I was asked to give a talk about how I came into this public history work um, by an organization uh, called Willow. And it was, it's um Women's Intergenerational Living Legacy Organization. And basically, oh. each year, it uh, asks about five or six Tacoma women to come in and tell a story. Um, no notes, just tell a story in about 10 minutes or so about something that's happened in your life. It'll give you a theme, right? So I came and was asked to talk about my work on Tacoma's Japantown. Mm. Um, there was an audience, you know, a couple hundred people or so in the, in the theater and at the, at the gathering at the festival where I told my story was a, uh, woman named Senator Rosa Franklin. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and after the whole thing was over, she came up to me on stage and, you know, it's just, everybody's kind of, you know, milling around the stage and, you know, chat, 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 chat. And she said, she just came up to me. She's, you know, 90. Well, she was probably like 93, right? When this happened, right? So she comes up and she said, I just really liked your story. Mm. I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And she said, you know, the Washington State Legislature is doing this oral history project. And I was, you know, will you send me your resume? And oh my gosh. And when someone like that asks you for your resume, I say, of course you do. (laughs) 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 I pulled things together frantically, right? So next day I emailed it to her and said, oh, great. So here's my resume. And she said, this looks great. And I, I, I'm just, thank you again for your story. I really enjoyed it. And she said, now, will you send it to this person Secretary of the Washington State Senate, and here's oh. his email. And I said, "Sure. Um, could I ask 
why? Yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, there's, there's this oral history project that they're working on. And I just think you would be great. So just send, send your resume. They'll be expecting you. I said, sure. <gasps> <laughs> so I send my resume to the Secretary of the Senate, and he writes back and he says, Well, Senator Franklin is one of my favorite people who's ever worked here in Olympia, and she is probably too modest to mention that she is the next subject of our Washington State Legislature oral history project in which we mm. ask pe- someone to document the biography and conduct their oral history. Um, <laughs> and, and here's some examples of past projects. So I clicked to the link of past projects and they are books, right? And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And, Surprise. And this is how I understood that she was asking me to be her biographer. Wow. Wow. That's a really <laughs> exciting story. Like, right? like oh my gosh. Speaking of black excellence chose you. Like how exciting is that? <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> we had ju- only really just met. And, and so the secretary of the Senate said, you know, why don't you two just meet one more time to make sure, you know, it's a good fit and, you know, we can you know, go from there. I mean, he said, you know, you don't have a you know, book like experience necessarily, but you know, if the, if you're, you know, the resume looks good to Rosa, then it's probably good enough for us. So we went, we met at a Starbucks and had coffee on election day, uh, 2018. Mm. <laughs> How? Um, and we talked just for like an hour and a half. She just, she just started telling me her story right then. And I was so mad that I didn't have something to record. Mm. <laughs> but she just, you know, was, we were, she was so comfortable and so charming and so lovely. And by the end of that hour and a half, I was kind of a little bit in love, you know, like she was just, I was like, yeah, I'll tell your story. Sure. <laughs> so my resume had to go through another level of vetting um, huh. at, at the legislature after that. But they pretty much said, you know, this is Senator Franklin's choice. So it was was really, really amazing. So I'm sure that was a total pinch me moment. It was. I mean, I, I had never written a book before. (laughs) I had done, you know, I had done a dissertation, but that's very different. (laughs) Right. I would imagine. Yeah. It's very different. Um, I don't even, I'm I'm an avid reader, but I barely read biographies. (laughs) So, um, and I had done a little bit of oral history work in college, but not conducted certainly my own oral history project before. So it was a fast learning curve, right? Oh my god! But it was so much fun. She was such a lovely person, and she's still alive and with us, and we keep in touch. And um, they just renamed one of the parks here in Tacoma for her, and so I got to go and like speak about her accomplishments and help her pull off the sign that you know that the curtain with the sign renamed yeah. the park. Yeah, it was it's great. I mean, it was a joyful experience I can't believe I got to do it (laughs) I have to ask like how did she like the book did she give you oh yes did she read it like okay so here's the thing she did she absolutely did but the first draft that I gave her definitely was not what she I think had thought it would be at first um and (laughs) and I and I suffered like agonies of like you know, 
guilt and whatever for like a week before we actually got to meet to talk about it. I was like, oh, oh my no. gosh, I just want to surf her story. I hope it's okay. <laughs> yes. All the things. Um, but I think part of it, it, it's a couple of things, right? Part of it is that um, I hadn't quite gotten her motivations as clear in that first draft. Um, one. Second, I think it's really hard to see your own story told yeah. by someone else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that think about sense. think about what it would be like to actually have someone like hand you a book of your life. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So at first, like I sent her a draft of her email and she read it and she said, you know, we're going to have to meet, we're going to have to talk. And I was like, <gasps> you know, <laughs> freak out. Um, totally. But I, but then when we actually met and she kind of had like marked up, you know, as much of the draft as, as she could, I, I realized, oh, okay. There's just these parts that, you know, don't, aren't quite clear. There are some parts where, um, you know, there was, there was just, she wanted a little more, you know, a, a slight difference in tone here, but she's not a writer, right. In that she's not used to giving feedback on writing. Yeah. Sure. And so, you know, that, that is a kind of learned skill, <laughs> right. <laughs> totally, totally. Right. And so, and, and so I was really worried and when she, when I met and she, and I, after she said, just look over this, look over the marks. And so I started looking and looking and talking and I said, so, but you're okay. Right. You don't, I, th- I, I was worried you wanted another writer. And she looked at me and she was just like, Oh no, no, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I love this story. Cause I think there's two really important life lessons. I think life lesson number one is just because you haven't done something, it doesn't mean you can't not do it. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, you went from not writing a book to ha- having a second one published and a third and down the pipeline. We'll get to that in yeah. a minute. But like, that's amazing. I think that sometimes, you know, the, I think sometimes the unknown can scare people so badly out of their full potential. But I love that your story is a case of like, nope, I'm totally able to do this. I'm going to rock this book. I'm going to do it for <laughs> Senator Franklin. I love that. But then also the, the 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 life lesson of, I think my mind was, and my self-doubt and that self-talk was getting the better of me. When oh, in yeah. reality, like she wanted to work in cahoots with you to make her story, your book, the best it could possibly be. Like, mm-hmm. I love that story. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I'd done a lot of things like it, right? But not that right and I was just like are you sure this is my first book she said I know but she this is the other one of the things I I learned from her again was that aesthetic um in African-American culture which I'd known about but I was reminded of it here of lifting as you climb Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. she is all about like you know picking someone might not know a bunch right but they're gonna learn along with you know along with you and so she quite deliberately I think picked me because you know this will be my first book um because I was a woman I think that helped um she had been other names had been suggested to her but um she really liked I guess the way I told the story and that I would be you know okay to talk to and and work with and she was not, and I was not from Olympia. Like I was not a policy wonk. I was not uh, an insider politician in that sense. I was going to learn about the process <laughs> um, <laughs> while while going along. And honestly, the PhD did prepare me for that in that I had a lot of experience managing myself, mm. right? And 
breaking down a large project into manageable chunks and analyzing and reading a bunch and digesting it into a different, you know, package. So that was helpful. Definitely. Because it feels like the skills that you use to write your first book now you have a second book out. It's a yes. graphic novel called <laughs> We Hereby Refuse Japanese-American Resistance to Wartime Incarceration. Mm-hmm. It's your second book. Congratulations. Thank you. Co-written. But yes, absolutely. Co-written. I will. That's right. I, I sit corrected. But again, girl, I'm giving you all your flowers. <laughs> this is the second book. That is so a sweet. big deal. <laughs> <laughs> And what was the inspiration behind this book? And did you feel a sense of urgency to get this book published uh, with the way, the, with the state of the world, I would imagine, when you were writing it and now? Oh, such great questions. Um, so inspiration first. Um, my co-writer, Frank Abe, and I were hired by the Wingluck Museum in Seattle, um, along with two artists, Ross Ishikawa and Nat Sasaki. Um, And The Wing is actually putting together a series of graphic novels about the Japanese-American wartime experience. So the first one is already out. It's about the Nisei veterans, um, those who fought, you know, volunteered mostly from from behind barbed wire and fought for their country. Um, The second book is ours. That's the one about Japanese-American resistance to the incarceration. And the third book should be out in the fall, and it's about allies, like those who helped Mm. Japanese-Americans. And so a lot of this was already in place, right? Like it was going to be a graphic novel, right? Uh, You know, and we were we had not applied as a team. So we um, basically had to learn how to work together. Wow. Um, which was definitely an interesting process. And then, um, <laughs> and it was going to be a graphic novel no matter what. So we had to learn how to write a graphic novel. I had read graphic oh novels. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, <laughs> yep. here's another genre that <laughs> did not necessarily know, but um, wow. was going to dive in. Um, for that. So the inspiration, I guess you could say, really, was just the spirit of Japanese American resistance, which has been hidden for a long time by the government, by our own community, um, by history books. You know, the, the dominant narrative about Japanese Americans is that they went willingly into camp and they stayed there nice and quiet until they got to go out. And they didn't really know why, but, you know, they did, it was for the best, right? But there's there's so much, right, about Japanese American incarceration that's not in that narrative, right? And my uh, my grandfather and my uncle, who's one of the main characters in the book, my uncle, um, mm. both of them, right, resisted the incarceration in different ways. And so I wanted to make sure that um, to, I want to be I wanted to be a part of uh, telling this story for a larger audience. Fantastic. I I also, we say a lot on this show, it's really important that we are the ones telling our stories. Right. Because if white (laughs) historians had it their way, they would still be pushing the narrative when it came, when it came to Japanese incarceration, that they went willingly and silently. And that was the way that they thought it was best. Like, I think that's what white historians will, will do if we are not the ones handling our own history. A lot have, and I mean, and to be fair, there have been some, not all, but some white historians, right, who have been um, 
part of telling and researching the history of Japanese American resistance. So um, certainly um, like Eric Muller and Roger Daniels and uh, Greg Robinson, folks who really have um, taken the time to learn about Japanese American resistance and to do the work. But I tend to say that I'm more drawn to us telling our stories. For sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. We would definitely agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. And speaking of telling your own story, you're writing a memoir. You're in the process of writing your memoir called (laughs) Pilgrimage. That's right. What made you want to write a memoir? And how is writing a memoir different from the other types of writing you have done? Well, honestly, the memoir is the book that I have been trying to write for years. Got it. (laughs) Okay. I am really, I think, um, I started out my training in creative writing as a poet and um, made my way into personal essay and anything after that, right, has has been things that I've fallen into, just, you know, the public history piece and the, you know, the encyclopedia writing and um, community journalism, all that stuff I fell into. But really the memoir and the personal essay are the things that I was meant to write. (laughs) 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 So, um, but it's, but memoir is hard, right? Um, Yes, I would imagine. You know, I, I, I I struggle with some of the other writing that I do because I need to leave myself out of it, Mm. right? Or to um, not use the word I necessarily, or, you know, it's, it's not that I pretend to be objective because I don't think that's possible. Um, (laughs) But you know, it's not something that, you know, like for an encyclopedia article, right? Like, you know, the writer just does not really enter the picture, right? Sure. And so for, it might have been one of the pieces that I sent you guys, but maybe not. Um, for one article, encyclopedia article that I was writing, I was feeling all these feels, right? But those could not go into the article. So I actually wrote a whole separate personal essay about the writing and what that was, what that felt like, um, because it was very, it was a really sad um, but, you know, also kind of a healing process. Um, so Pilgrimage, then, um, is a memoir that I've been trying to write for about 10 years, <laughs> but have written a few books along the way. <laughs> um, I'm learning a lot about uh, how to do a narrative through line larger than, you know, the 2000 words or the shorter personal essays that I usually do. Um, and that's going to be a process. But it really is the book that I have wanted to write for a long time. Um, so back mm-hmm. in 2014, um, I had just come out of academia. I was just trying to find um, a new career. I had been denied tenure. And so I was grieving a lot, right? I'd spent 12 years, right, to try and uh, become like a, a um, you know, tenured college professor. Mm-hmm. And so I had left my, I had left academia, I had you know, applied for jobs, and I got this offer from my aunt to go on pilgrimage to the site in Northern California, to the lake where my dad and his family were incarcerated during World War II. Mm. And I thought, at the, you know, at that time, I was, um, I was grieving my career, right? I was also grieving my dad, who had died when I was 10. And I had found that in uh, trying to avoid the grief about the career, I had um, basically jumped into this older grief about my dad, this unresolved grief about my dad. And 
going on pilgrimage, you know, I thought, well, it's, I'm writing a book about my dad and I'm writing a book about our history. So sure, it'll be, you know, important to go. But it was such a transformative experience to go and to stand in these places, um, to be with my, uh, my aunt, his younger sister in that, in that spot. Um, and it really taught me a lot about the importance of healing and community. And so that is mm-hmm. the, um, that is the through line of the book, like how, how Tommy Kill learned how to cry, <laughs> um, how <laughs> Tommy Kill learned how to grieve these multiple things and yeah. the importance that um, the community, that the community can play in the role of healing. I feel like we need that book right now. We do. Seriously. Uh, I feel like if, that, if you drop that book tomorrow, you would hit oh, the New York that's Times. That's so sweet to hear. We all need. Well, I think those lessons of, of how to grieve and, and community, which is the through line of a lot of your writing. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that we need those writings more than ever. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's. We, I think so much of our how we think about grief and how we think about healing is individual. Right. And mm-hmm. so much of what I learned um, on pilgrimage, but also from things like women of color feminism are about the role of community. And we mm-hmm. have to be able to rely on each other and to give each other that gift of, of healing through community. So that's what this third book is about. And you can guess a little bit more mm-hmm. than like why it's taking me so long to write it. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, no idea why. Right? So yeah, it's a little heavy. Um, but I have I think I have some I found some ways that um will leaven it a little bit. Um I one of the things I did in trying to find a new career was food writing. So Ooh. right. <laughs> So part of that love for food and, uh, and, and, you know, that role it also plays in community, right. Shows up in the book. Um, you know, snacks were an important part of yes, it. Yes. <laughs> snacks. I mean, Japanese American potlucks are some of the best things ever, like epic potlucks. And, you know, like by extension, like people of color give the best parties. They do the mm-hmm. best potlucks, right? Like mm-hmm. total learning out of food. So, I mean, so we're not biased here at all. It's just, no, 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 no. It's, it's just true. It's just true. Um, so I, I, that is some, that is one of the ways I think that um, is a joyful part, right, of being in community. And in the Japanese American community, a lot of a lot of what's out there is about camp history, um, for sure, which is a heavy subject. But I think part of it, like, part of what will help um, with this book is a, a bit of the food and a bit of the joy. And there's some dancing. Also mm. <laughs> I'm so down for that. Um, is there anything that you hope that people will take away from all of these different types of writings that you have? Your memoir, the graphic novel, your personal writing? Oh my gosh, it's such a good question. And if I could, <laughs> um, so yes, but I, I think I have to tell another story. Sure, uh, go, go for yeah, it. For sure. So when I was teaching, I had my students as an exercise um, write their own obituary. Oh, oh. Okay. I know, right? Which is very. <laughs> I just dumped, jumped off the deep end there. I was not expecting that. that. Of, okay. What kind of teacher are you? But I also, <laughs> I know, I was a good teacher though. Um, I 
I also did the exercise myself along with them. Mm. And it was a surprising exercise. And I, when I had my oldest daughter, who must have been like five or six, right? When I was, you know, real time in the classroom writing it, but in the obituary, of course, she was an adult. And I had my oldest daughter saying something like, she just really loved how words could bring people together. Mm. <laughs> and after I had written that, I looked at that and went, well, no, I, I think that's actually true. <laughs> like this is, I mean, that is, has been the power of words for me um, about bringing people together and connecting communities um, about, you know, cross-racial solidarity, about uh, families and a real curiosity about the role that silence and memory play in family and in history. So all of those things uh, together, but really at the heart, it's how can words bring people together? Love it. Well, taking off of that theme, I think that there's going to be a little bit of that coloring this answer, but um, we have a lot of creative listeners of oh, all yes. types who listen to this show, and some of them either might want to be writers, have started to become writers, or maybe are a little bit afraid to... Um, to, to, to say that they want to be a writer, but they're like making their way to that discovery mm-hmm. and making their way on that journey. What advice would you give to any of our listeners who are interested in becoming writers? Where do they start? What should they do? A- a- any and all advice would be amazing. Oh, yeah. So I am first a reader and then a writer. Um, I've been reading for a very long time since I was, my parents say I was one and a half when I started reading. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, my dad was a librarian, so occupational hazard, uh, wow. but lots of tons and tons and tons of reading. And what helped me a lot in making my way into becoming a writer professionally was doing a lot of low stakes writing. Like a ton of low stakes writing. What exactly is low stakes writing? So at the time it was blogging. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it was, it was the best thing that I could do because I had, you know, I put myself on a little schedule. I decided to call my blog, um, my own private MFA because I had degrees in English already. I didn't okay. really need to go and try to pay for another one. So... <laughs> I would give myself assignments and then I would, you know, put the, put up the results. And this is, you know, this helped me do so many things, right? It helped me build a portfolio, which is important when you're trying to, you know, uh, you know, pitch editors or whoever. Um, and then once it was online, right, it was very, very easy for people to find my work. And so I would, you know, post a little thing on social media, like, oh, here's my new blog entry. And people were reading blogs at this time. So this is not. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, now it's like RIP to your Yeah, blog. I know. Yeah. Now I'm not sure what kind of advice I would give, but in terms of the actual medium, but I think low stakes writing was the best thing because portfolio, but also it helped me find my voice. Mm-hmm. Right. It helped me really um, put it out there without necessarily worrying about what was going to happen to it. Mm-hmm. Right. I was like, okay, well, my mom's going to read it. My husband's going to read it, whatever. <laughs> right. But after a <laughs> while I would put up something and then someone would say, Oh, I read this piece. Would you like to be right here? And so um, those two things have been really important for me really. Um, and reading a ton just so again, I could find my voice um 
given what I was reading. Like, okay, well, I really like how this writer does this. And then I would start to unpack, oh, what? how exactly did they do that? Or how do they write this way? Um, so some of it became kind of imitation, but also really trying to integrate parts of that into my own voice. I think that's really, really solid advice. I love awesome. it. Thank you so much for passing it along. Yeah, absolutely. And our last question, how can our listeners keep up with you? Where can they find you? Where can they find your work? We want all the plugs. <laughs> all um, the plugs. Honestly, I can barely keep up with me, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Central place for a lot of my stuff, but not all of it, is my website, which is tamikonimura.net. Um, not com, but dot net. <laughs> um, yes. And it's got uh, links to a lot of my essays, a lots of the sample things. Um, it has links to, um, for a little while, my blog, which I had. And so you can just see, right? how badly I started out <laughs> and then you know you can see what happens <laughs> over the decade or so that that it's gone forth but um yeah that's the number one place um I'm on insta though I'm a private account so you have to request to follow me yeah. um, I'm on <laughs> facebook um and I'm on twitter at tamiko n so t-a-m-i-k-o-n you can find me there um and yeah i'm doing a bunch of more a bunch more events uh partly for the graphic novel and i have things forthcoming in a couple of journals uh, i have i did some arts writing for open space which is a journal affiliated with sf moma and that should be out sometime in the next month or so and i have a piece accepted for a website uh, called off assignment Right on, Tomiko. Pun totally intended there. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with us. This has been a really, really fun conversation. That is the end of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the Black and Yellow Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Black and Yellow Podcast. Or if you want to send us a little email letting us know your deepest, darkest thoughts, we are podcastblackandyellow at gmail.com. You can hop on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rate and a review that helps us to boost this little show. 